here we go. It's Monday night. Once again, time for Iron Sports. True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. We are live. We're in the studio. Ira's getting uh, maybe a little cabin fever, hasn't been able to travel for anything uh, in a little while. But Ira, it's always good to have you here in studio. What have you been up to? I'm watching tennis so much. This Wimbledon is great. Next year, I got to be there. If I'm not there, I don't know what. I got to be in Wimbledon. It was amazing. I'm, I'll tell you, on Sunday, I was rooting for Djokovic so hard. I felt like I, I felt like I rooted for him more than I rooted for the Heat. Like it was at the, <laughs> it was at uh, Penn State Steeler level. But it was just for four and almost five hours, just dying watching that. <laughs> It was great. And I think I'm like all by myself alone. Listen, I'm talking to so many people today. A lot of people watch the match. We're going to talk a lot about Wimbledon coming up. Uh, it's exciting stuff. We're also going to have Jeff Fletcher join us around 720. We've had Jeff on before, and there's a good reason you decided to bring him back. He is the Shohei Otani expert, and in the next week and a half, with the trade deadline of baseball coming up, that's the number one. That's the only thing really anyone is talking about is whether Shohei Otani is going to be traded, and whether a team is going to say, "We'll make." It, it, will the Angels want to trade him in the first place? And if a team trades for him, is that team then going to have the leg up in terms of trying to sign him to the largest contract in the history of baseball, probably the history of sports in North America, and maybe in, ever. Yeah, it's going to be a massive deal once he gets his, his next contract going. We'll talk to Jeff Fletcher about that at 7.20. But let's start off with Wimbledon. And Ira, you managed to link together Wimbledon with professional wrestling. Yes, and yes. How today, right here, you got to beat Ric Flair one more time. Remember, Steamboat and pal, I'll kiss your boots if you can do it. But to be the man, you got to beat the man. And I'm saying... So, how did you manage to bring these two together? Because Novak Djokovic had won four straight Wimbledon titles. He was going for his eighth Wimbledon title. In everyone's now with the doll, with hip surgery being out the rest of the year, Federer is retired. He is the man. Like, he is the man of all time because he beat Federer and Nadal more. He has a better record against both of them, has more titles than they have. And at the U.S. Open, he couldn't play. He was banned because of the vaccine. And Alcaraz was able to win at the U.S. Open and be the title. Now, Djokovic won at the Australian because Alcaraz was injured and didn't play. So, but he's, Alcaraz is number one in the world. He's been number one. They played at the French Open in the semifinals. Djokovic beat him in the French Open because because Alcaraz got too nervous. He got nervous in the third set. Admittedly, he was not like a make his up. He said, I was too nervous. The pressure got to me and I got cramps and I got my legs and I couldn't move. That's a, so coming into this, it's like, Okay, he's walking around. He's the number one seed. He's 20 years old. He's the next He's the next big thing. He is going to be the person. But everyone's saying, you're not the next big thing unless you beat the man. And uh, it surprised to me, he did. He beat the man. So on in the man's house, on the man's surface, he hadn't lost on that court in 10 years. And uh, that was, I just give all credit in the world for a great match for Carlos Alvarez. He really... That fifth set, I kept telling people, we're going to go through this whole thing. But when it went to the fifth set and Djokovic won the fourth, and I'm like, Djokovic has taken Carlos out to the deep end of the pool. And there's no uh, floaties on the arms. This is it. This is in the deep end. And I have seen Djokovic in these fifth sets beat Nadal and beat Federer and beat everyone in in, in 100-degree heat everywhere in the most pressure. And Akaraz beat him. I could not believe it. I just, it's like... Wow, I, it was amazing. It was it's it's one of those matches, and we talk about. I wrote an email out to my people who subscribe to my all my emails, but I wrote an email saying, rarely in times do we have a player who people think is going to be the next great one or one of the greatest of all time as they're when they're young going against some an older player that's still 
is at the top. Mm. And I I thought of the Super Bowl a couple years ago. Tom Brady is yeah, you know with, is, is there Mahomes, yeah. and Mahomes and and Brady ended up winning and, that, and and I'm going back in time because Jordan and Kobe didn't really play in the championships and there was a time in the 83 finals uh Magic Johnson with the Lakers the Jordan beat Magic and I felt like that was a time but like in boxing I remember Ali uh fought against Holmes and Ali though was washed up and Holmes beat him and usually that's what happens usually someone like Tiger and Jack played at the Masters together at the same time but Jack was 58 7 <laughs> 58 years old. I mean, you would like that it would have been that at that level would have been so cool if Jack was like maybe like 42 and Tiger was 20 and had something like that. But it's rare in sports that you get this where you have the the great player who's still at the top going against that next great that everyone's saying is the next great one right at there. And that's what we got Sunday. I couldn't wait. I, I, I was so excited to watch that. And I was in shock. For, I, I felt that Akaraz could win, but I, and I was nervous during the whole match. But that when it got to the fifth, I'm like, wow. I, I, I can't believe how he, he took that this set. You can follow Ira anywhere across social media at Ira on Sports. So let's talk about how we got here, Ira. Like you, I mean, I, I think you were pretty much sold that Djokovic was going to win before this even started just because he said his, his dominant run at, at this venue on this surface was going to be impossible to beat. Because Alcaraz is young, has not... The, remember, it's the sport, tennis is a weird sport. Their number one event, which I would say Wilton is the number one event, is played on a surface that nobody has grass courts in their backyards. Nobody's running around and playing. It's very... It's a, it's a surface that years ago people played on, but not now. I mean, it used to be Australian Open and the US Open used to be played on grass. Now only Wilton is, and you don't find any other tournaments and only after the French it's only a three week period of time you can play on grass and we had the COVID year we had the Russian players banned you had situations where Akaraz is young so Akaraz is not growing up hitting on grass courts Djokovic has all this experience on grass courts so I felt like and even he said in his Latin in, in the conference afterwards I thought look if you're going to beat me anywhere it's going to be on hard courts and be friend, not on grass and so Akaraz had very little experience had just played a few matches on grass and had won the Queens Club title the week before but really had no other practice you know history he had lost two years ago he met him beat him two two and two at the Wimbledon so for for Alcaraz to improve so much is just pretty amazing for that and that's what I think was you know it's surprising what made Wimbledon so exciting would you like to talk about how we got to uh, this spot yeah well Sinner the just we left off on Monday and the in the quarter men's quarters of the next two days and, and Jakob Sinner who is 21 years old who people against Alcaraz is open had a match point to win again I think the quarterfinals uh, and lost that Sinner played uh, uh, um, uh of Russian Roman Sufflin who really just snuck into this thing. He beat him and Sinner had this like draw where it was like one of the only players in the last 25 years to make it to the semifinals without playing any seeded players at all. So he got this easy draw. Djokovic played Andre Rublev, a Russian number seven seed from uh, and and lost the first set actually 4-6 but but it was a good match. Rublev's a great young player coming on but he was able to battle and win that. And then the other quarter was Medvedev, the Russian number three uh, played Chris Eubanks and Eubanks is the story of all stories. Here's someone who, he's 27 years old. He graduated from Georgia Tech, was a, mostly for the last seven years just played challenger minor league uh, tennis. Uh, he really had only one ma match at winning a major in um, 25, 30 tournaments. He couldn't even get into the main draw, just the mm -hmm. qualifying tournaments. And out of nowhere in this tournament, he played well at Miami. He goes and he has this great run where he beats Nori, who's an 11 seed. He beats Titsipas, who was the third speed and he comes in and get in the quarters and meets Medvedev 
and he took him to five sets, and he almost had it a tiebreaker in the fourth set to win. And it was just what a story. And Eubanks, just this turnaround, like you don't see this. This is this at twenty in tennis. Usually, like players retire when they're twenty-seven, yeah. and suddenly he's just got. And I really think he the way he plays with his serve, and he's from he's just such enthusiasm. And I watched him on the tennis channel, and he said commentating on the tennis channel helped him be a better tennis player, and it certainly did. So big, big, big uh, kudos to to Chris. I'd love to get him on the show. He'd be a, he's That'd be fantastic. he's phenomenal. I've, and he lost, but he, again, he lost in five sets to Medvedev. And the last uh, quarterfinal was great. Alcaraz versus Danish Holger Rune. Rune was the sixth seed. He's also 20 years old. He is going to be, he might be the person besides center that challenges Alcaraz. Rune and Alcaraz were been best friends their whole life. There's pictures of them when they were like eight, nine years old playing doubles together. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, and and boy, Alcaraz beat him 7 6 6 4 6 4. But and then keep your eye on Rune. Rune is definitely going to be someone who, maybe at the US Open, that's going to challenge Alcaraz. And that, that brought us to the semifinals. Djokovic for center. There's a 14 year age difference between the two of them. And and I felt like you know, this is the type of match where it got to the, Djokovic won the first at 6-3, won the first at 6-4, seconds at 6-4. And then in the third set, it was like, wow, maybe it fell apart. Sinner played great, stayed in there. You get to the tiebreaker, and in the tiebreaker, again, Djokovic has now won 14 straight tiebreakers in a row. And it was after, actually, earlier in the third set that Sinner had a set point to take the set and was able to battle back, save two set points. And then in the end, Sinner was up 3-1 in the tiebreaker. Djokovic came back, won 7-4, having won 14 straight tiebreakers. So that put himself again in the final. And then in the other semifinal, Alcaraz and Medvedev. Remember, two years ago, I said, Medvedev beat Alcaraz like 2-2-2 and it comes into this and Medvedev's serve on hard courts is like nobody returns it and usually grass is good if you're hard good or hard for some reason his serve is not that dominant I don't know what it is I don't know what the spit is I don't know what happens but Alcaraz was able to play just I mean crushed Medvedev and and again Medvedev's number was the number uh, three seed in the tournament but a big win for for Carlos to get to the final so that set us up now for the fifth set for the the five set final match Um, remember in the French Open Joker won in in, uh, four sets and uh uh, Alcaraz had won the U.S. Open. But this match, I'll tell you how great it was. Four hours and 42 minutes. Um, Alcaraz won 168 points. Djokovic won 166 points. Only a two-point difference from the whole time. In the first set, Alcaraz almost broke, and Djokovic came back. He not only broke Alcaraz, he then destroyed him in the first set. He kept breaking him again, made it 6-1. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh, this is, like, over. Like, this is Djokovic's Alcaraz is going to be nervous. He can't handle it. This is – it's just too much. The event is too much. Alcaraz is making mistakes. And everyone's like, boy, I mean, I had things like, boy, I can go to the beach. You know, this is – you know, <laughs> I'm not going to be for four hours. It'll be over. So, guys, tennis can be over, like, super fast. But that's the one fun thing about tennis is that even if you – if this was basketball, you'd be down, like, 25 to nothing, games over, or football 30. You know, it's, it's over. But in tennis, it's one set, then start again. And so now it's only down one set. It's the second set. Alcaraz held to make it one nothing. Joker was not serving well. Joker broke to go up 2-1, but then it just went, they finally went to the tiebreaker at 6-6, and Joker had a mini break. So he actually had a break, got another break, and was and had a set point in the tiebreaker, and just missed a couple bad shots. 
and you remember, had won 14 straight tiebreakers in, in Grand Slam tournaments. And uh, finally, and, and at 6-5, he had the, had the that set point. Remember, he'd gone up two sets to none. But Alcaraz passed him on a serve and uh, and won the tiebreaker 8-6. I mean, Djokovic served and tried to volley, and, and Alcaraz just hit it right down the line. And that was like, if he would have won that set, there's no way Alcaraz would have won three straight sets. And then the third set was just crazy. I mean, Djokovic, there was one point, one mat, one, one, um, one game in that was 3-1, Joker was serving, and it was a 27-minute game. It's the longest game I've ever seen. It just, he could not win on a serve, and it just deflated him. He ended up losing that set, 6-1. So now Akraz is up two sets to one, and you're like, well, Djokovic's not going to give up. He comes in the mm-hmm. fourth set, he ends up and wins that, 6-3. Looks great. And then you're thinking, okay, he won the fourth set, it's 6-3. Djokovic's got, got everything. Momentum, yeah. You got, this. he's what he's, he's used to this. And and like now we're waiting for cramping from Alcaraz or whatever. You come in there, Joker's up 1-0 and had break point on Alcaraz to go up 2-0. And he had it. Alcaraz was like off the court on the ground and he took this swinging, anyone who plays tennis knows what I'm talking about. He had this easy shot. He just hit it right in the net. Just right in, it made no sense whatsoever. It could have gone up 2-0, that was 1-1. But then Alcaraz then broke the next game and then held that break the entire way. And then it was 5-4 and he's serving and you're like, okay, now this is the chance for Joker to come back. And he just couldn't. I mean, he Alcaraz was had the drop shots and the serves and everything. And it was, ended up winning 6-4. And, and, and what, why this was a little bit different, I mean, I could not believe how well Alcaraz utilized the drop shots because in tennis, Djokovic's on the line. Like the, the shots were perfect, and he hits all these crazy shots when he's in trouble. And this wasn't a type of match that Djokovic only had like two aces or three aces. Alcaraz only had four. It's usually a grass. You have those big serves where you just get ace, ace, ace. It's just his ability to, to craft the shots. To and and at the first set he was overhitting, and this Alcaraz played smart. He realizes I cannot just pound the ball. I just I have to wait because Djokovic's getting everything back. And then there were some great points in the match where. Against anybody else, you watch this. And Akraz would hit a shot as that's a winner. But no, it comes back. Djokovic hits it. And not just, just flails to get it back, but he hits a better shot. And they each hit better shots. So you could hear the fans screaming, like, oh my gosh, like one against any other human being, that would be a winner. And Mats Wielander, I just heard him on today, said that he's never seen on a grass court two players play that well. I don't know. I think Federer and Djokovic's match was a little bit better. But the uh, point was, it was that was just a tremendous victory. And... Uh, Boy, I don't know where we go from there because Alcaraz, this was probably his worst surface and he just beat Djokovic was the best on it. And you go to the U.S. Open, Alcaraz is going to be a heavy favorite. He's 20 years old. He's only going to get better and Djokovic's only getting older. And Alcaraz looks like he's distanced himself from all his other peers. And this looks like unless Alcaraz gets hurt, he's going to win many, many majors. To be the man, you got to beat the not man. Be and the that's man. exactly what He did. Happened. I mean, I just thought that. I just <clears> thought that as Rick Fl- I just saw that. I'm like, wow. And he did. And that's, it's it, it'll be... I'm going to be intrigued to see what uh, Djokovic is not going to give up. I think Djokovic is going to come back hard and want to, and, and try to get this. Like I think he 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 was behind Nadal and Federer for years and years and mm-hmm. years. They were better, and he had to catch them. They're like, oh, and you never catch them. He went and got better. Who, who could have ever believed that? So he went after getting Federer and Nadal, and now you think, oh, he's going to be in the twilight, and he's this and that. He's not popular. The, he's popular among the players. The players love Djokovic. The fans don't, and uh, because he wasn't Nadal, he wasn't Federer, and Alcaraz is super popular. But he's used to that. But I think this. This is just going to drive him to somehow like, you know, this is okay. Now this is another obstacle in my path. It's not going to be easy. I'm going to have to do this. So we'll see what happens. It's 717. This is Iron Sports. True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. About 10 minutes from now, Jeff Fletcher from the Orange County Register is going to join us. Talk all about Shohei Otani. Where is he going? Is he staying in L.A.? We're going to find out uh, what the um, what the guru of uh, Shohei will tell us here in a few. 
Let's go to the women's side, Ira, and what happened here? Not as exciting as the men's, but still, Marqueta Van der Rosa beat, uh, won the title, and she was unseated. This is what I cannot stand about tennis, is that in 2000, they were saying, oh, she's out of nowhere. In 2019, she was in the finals of the French Open. In two, in, she was also in the 21, the, at, the, at the Olympics, she won the silver medal. So she's won, but she's had wrist surgeries in her wrist twice. So that's why she's unranked and everything like that, and, and she wasn't seated at all in the tournament. But it's not like she doesn't know how to play tennis. She was right. She, they don't hold the seeds. If we put, if we look at the situation, we'd say, you know, she's better than someone who's not unseated. Mm-hmm. And that's what I can't stand about tennis. The tennis should be, you should be, again, the French Open had Alcaraz and Djokovic playing because they didn't seed them one, two. Everyone knew they were one, two. And I think that seeding should be improved. But anyway, so she plays Jessica Pagula, number four seed from America. And Jess had, four, I'm watching this. It's 4-1 in the third set. Jessica has not made a major semifinal. She's the daughter of the owner of the Buffalo Bills. She's up 4-1 in the third, and she blew. She almost went to 5-1, had two bad points to go, loses that, loses that 6-4. And then in the other big matches, unseated Alina Switalona, who also is a great player, but has had just had a child, so she came back, and she's from Ukraine, so you have the whole Ukrainian playing for Ukraine, the country. She played Iga Swiatek, who is the number one seeded player. She upset her. That was a very emotional match. They're actually close friends. And then the other American, Madison Keys, who had a great tournament so far, got blown off the court by Sabalinka, the two seed, 6-2-6-4. And Ons Jabor, um, who is everyone's favorite from Tunisia, she beat the defending champion, Rabanka, in, th- in three sets. And then the semifinals, uh, Vondorosa beat the Ukrainian Sabalinka, 6-3-6-3. And in a, in a great match, Jabor beat Sabalenka. And this set up for Jabor, who's been... She's the the favorite. She's she, she wears her emotion on her sleeve. She has so much, <laughs> whatever. She's crying. She's everything. She's lost in two finals. She just had lost in the. Uh, it, it, she had just lost in the major finals, and she. It was she just didn't come to play. Like Von de Rosa beat her six four six four. It wasn't close, and uh, I gotta give credit. I mean, Von de Rosa was uh, was inspired by Martina Navratilova. Her parents didn't even give her that much of a chance. They didn't even show up at the match. Her fiance just showed up because he was he was cat sitting, and uh, it was it's it was it, it came there. But it was it was really a, a big win. For, now the question is, this is what's happening in women's tennis. You get a win like this from an unseeded player. Now are they gonna hold that? Are they gonna so? And we have Emma Raducanu uh, won the U.S. Open. A couple years ago, and then just fell off the map because it didn't win. So I think I think uh, Marquetta will. She's 24 years old. I really believe she has a perfect game. She's left-handed, was flying around the court, great at movement. She can volley, does everything. So I think she'll be back. But it was great. Not not the not the excitement that you have without Serena and Venus. The women's game definitely misses that star power, but it's still very exciting. But the men's, she just that's why we started out talking about tennis. And I'm sure everyone who <clears throat> doesn't like tennis, but <laughs> follow it. It's a great sport to watch. It's really awesome. I love it. It's like if you don't like if you like boxing because it's one on one. It's what it is on a court like that, but they're not killing each other. <laughs> it's seven twenty. Ira on sports. True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So the Midsummer Classic is in the books. I personally love the Major League Baseball All Star Game. We know you know the NFL's got some issues with theirs. Baseball's great because you get to see the players in like their natural element. They're there with their families. Everyone's having fun. You could see that these guys really enjoy what they do, and it's one of the reasons that I've loved it since I was a kid. Let's go to the home run derby first. You love it, right? Gotta tell you, I dislike the format terribly. We rushed out. Remember last (laughs) Monday we did did our show, and you're like, Ira, we have to go. We have to go. Home run derby. (laughs) Home run derby. I rushed home to watch it. I do. It's the old format where it was 10 outs is so much better than the current format. It was exciting to see the fans and the crowds wait on every single 
swing. You know, when um, Josh Hamilton at 28 at Yankee Stadium. I was there, I was there, I was there. That was one of the coolest things ever because everyone's waiting on every pitch. Now they're just rifling balls, and you're watching a split screen of guys take swings, balls falling, you know, into the um, the outfield. it's by time, not by swing. So it's almost like a physical fitness contest, not a home running contest because you're just trying to get get as many Mm -hmm. swings as possible. Yeah, you can take breaks now. There's bonus time for distance hit. I mean, guys like Vlad Guerrero, who, you know, Juan, he's, he's a bomber. You could, he's exhausted because they're trying to take as many swings as possible. And for me, that takes the fans out of it because you're seeing dozens of home runs. There's a ball entering or, you know, leaving the guys bat every three seconds. You can't focus on it like you can when it's just out. And- they never showed the ball going over the fences. It was just by, it was like watching a video game yeah. because it was going so much. And, and then I hated when they had it way behind it. Like you literally thought you were watching a video game and not really one well, because you weren't seeing the balls go. They didn't show like the little kids running around the mm-hmm. outfield trying to collect the balls. Or, or I think that's what we love about home runs though, seeing the ball go over the fence. You never saw yeah. that. You just saw the computer animation. Yeah, it, it, it's, you know, the crowd gets into it. You can hear them start to roar as you know as the ball comes off the bat here it was just probably just hanging out just watching like because you're seeing you know a thousand swings over the course of the day they want to make it more exciting to me this is not more exciting but uh hey congratulations anyway to, to vlad um this was uh, an impressive performance and like you could tell he was gassed by the end of this yeah i mean the question is in terms of i think julio rodriguez in the first round we said that alonzo was the favorite because he'd won it twice before and julio comes out there and, and does 41 home runs which is just unbelievable yeah. and his hometown fan a hometown a player people are going crazy and alonzo really had no shot it's this is the one this is the one year that it's usually better to be the the batter that comes up second of course but it actually because you actually know what you have to do but in this case it was back Actually, be better to be first because you usually the the people first set the standard. It was hard for the second in the championship. Vlad beat Azarena 25-23 as he had such a lead that Azarena couldn't 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 catch up with that. It was um no, it was interesting to see. I mean, Adley Rushman had a great performance, then got bested in the first round. So there was definitely excitement to it. Pete Alonso's pitching coach, you know, the guy throwing balls, was he throwing like sliders outside? He didn't get the best pitch. Well, he, I think his, the person that would normally throw to him was not throwing to him because he was, uh, um, he was injured or had said injury. So it was like, I think one of his, so they mm-hmm. had someone else and that was, it, it all, it actually, the person who wins the title should really be the coach because the coach is, is the one, the, or whoever's throwing the pitch, mm-hmm. if they, if they get the spot, if the sweet spot, and if they hit that sweet spot, then it's going to be a home run. It was interesting to see Vlad wanted balls up and in. And he was trying to murder balls that, like, you, I wouldn't swing at normally. And that's, like, that was his sweet spot. So I get that. But, no, congratulations. It's still exciting. But I, just, I wish they'd go back to the old 10-out format. The All-Star game itself, I said this last year here on I Run Sports, that it's really becoming difficult to hit late in these games. There's so many good closers now. I mean, you could bring these guys, you know, you could bring in a solid closer for five straight innings. It's really, t- I mean, it's, it start betting unders on these games. Because we saw last year, super low scoring, obviously, it was the, um, uh, Baltimore closer who ended up, you know, giving up the runs, uh, Cano. But regardless, this is these are becoming pitching matchups, not hitting contests. Yeah, the National League won three two, and it was a great day to be Diaz, Yandy Diaz of the Rays hit a home run, and then Elias Elias Diaz of the Rockies uh, hit a two run home run in the eighth to win it. So that was really the time to have it. But three two and Kimbrel, I think the only. 
if, if people stayed up to the end, they got to see Craig Kimbrell of the Phillies as a closer come in, and Julio Rodriguez for Seattle was up to you, the hometown player up, and mm-hmm. that, that was exciting to have that final at bat. And even Kimbrell said, boy, this was, you know, this is great you know, to have that <laughs> excitement. So that was good. And I think the stadium, I've never been to that stadium. It, it was, I think Seattle, uh, they really turned out for it. it. The All-Star game has really become popular. Like last year was in LA. Again, in the cities, that's where it is. They really takes over. We saw down here in Miami how they, it's really become that fan fest. It's like the NFL draft. Yeah. It's more than like just. the NHL did here with a week of events. Right. It's not just the game. And it's really for that home. It's like you want to have that. And that's why now we're going to have next week Tim Frank on. And I'm telling you, I think you're going to see the NBA draft go on, go places. I think that's the next thing you're going to see move out of Brooklyn and have it. And could you imagine the NBA draft down in Miami and what they would do? I mean, yeah, it'd Vegas, be crazy. Like that. And you're going to have celebrity, you have you know, concerts and everybody say, so I really think that's what's going to happen because I think they're, they're okay. I think Major League Baseball, as much as the Ulster game maybe doesn't have the, the pizzazz that it used to have, at least in the cities it's at, everyone loves it. I agree wholeheartedly. Just a minute till we go to Jeff Fletcher from the Orange County Register. Where do we stand standings-wise? I mean, anyone who watched the first month of baseball it was like, well, the Rays are just going to run away with the American League. They've come back to earth. How about this? The, the Rays are only one game ahead of Baltimore. Now, on the plus-minus rating, meaning how many more runs they have scored than given up, they're plus 152, which is really impressive. Baltimore is plus 53. <laughs> There's just 100 less, yeah. and they're only one game back. Yeah. So that's just amazing. And I think where you know, look, Boston is made of you know, one eight of the last 10. Now, they're 15 and 44. Can you believe the New York Yankees are in last place? Now, they still are in the playoff picture. Only two games out of the wide card at 50 and 44 but I think that and then in the west the angels have fallen apart that's why we're going to bring uh, Fletcher on to talk about Otani they're 46 and 48 there they've only won two of the last 10 games Seattle is even now and uh, Houston is really just coming back in terms of are they are they eventually going to pass Texas in a situation where they're going to pass Texas being a few games behind Texas in in, in the in the west now in the National League boy the I mean Atlanta just again and again so good. 61 and 31 plus 148 uh, and Miami is uh, 10 games back or nine and a half games back, but they're still comfortably or in the wild card. They're, they wouldn't get a wild card by the day. The Philly, Philadelphia Phillies are just like they did last year, though. You know, they just turn it on when they have mm-hmm. to. And now they're 51 and 42. They're 10 and a half back, but they're like half a game out of the wild card. So it's really the Giants, Miami and Arizona, the Phillies and Reds all sort of battling for those three wild card spot. And the uh, Dodgers have the lead in the West, Milwaukee in the Central and Atlanta in the East. And the Padres in the Mets. The two teams for the highest payrolls are both now eight and eight and a half games out from the wild card. Now, that's not insurmountable, but they still, you're just waiting for the Mets. I think people, they're not, I think the Mets are going to have trouble, but the Padres, with the lineup they have, all these great players, I just can't believe they haven't it's, turned I out. mean, you got Joe Musgrove and you Darvish, and then Blake Snell could be the Cy Young Award winner if the season ended today. This team can't hit. And you look at their lineup on paper. It's, just t- tell it's, the teams. Give the players. It, 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 I mean, Juan Soto, Manny Machado, Xander Bogarts, they just brought in. I mean, this is, Tatis. Yeah, it's Fernando not. Tatis. Like, one through eight is stacked. And they've got great uh, role players, uh, Jake Cronenworth and Hayshop Kim. What's the problem here? I mean, if I was the GM, that coach would have been gone a month ago. But I digress. You want to hear a damning stat about the Yankees? Go ahead. Aaron Judge leads the team in RBIs and hasn't played 45% of the season. <laughs> That's not a good thing when nobody else drives in runs. Anything before we go to Jeff? No, I think I'm, I, I'm excited in terms of I want to see. But I, the one, I'm going to give myself like one prediction. When the Pirates were hot, everyone was saying, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. I said, this, there's no way. And this, <laughs> You're a realistic right, fan. They are now bored. They're, they, besides the Nationals, they're going to have the, the, the next to worst record in the National League. They just keep losing and losing and losing. And I, I, it was unsustainable. 
unsustainable. They, they were playing with, I just, I thought it was ridiculous. And I, my friends in Pittsburgh, but you know, they're drawing well this year, which is surprisingly. But again, I just wish the Pirates would just focus on trying to win some games. Let's go to Jeff Fletcher. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Time to bring in Jeff Fletcher. He's from the Orange County Register. You can also pick up his book, Showtime, the inside story of Shohei Otani and the greatest baseball season ever played. Jeff, thank you uh, so much for joining us again. And, you know, the book's talking about the 2021 season. Who could have foresaw that 2022 would be even more of an impressive season? Yeah, and then 2023 is now uh, doing uh, along those tracks, too. So it's uh, it's been pretty amazing that he's continued doing this now for three years in a row it ira was a, a big proponent of him winning the mvp last year and i said it should have went to judge um but you know it, it, he's, he's making the case now that Shohei could win the mvp every year well i think that that is actually a part of the problem is that i think people have taken him for granted and i think that last year there was a little bit of a feeling of oh if he's just going to do this every year we're just going to have to give him the mvp every year and I think that that's why people kind of responded to that and said, you know, let's give it to somebody else. But I don't think he's going to do this every year. And I think that every year he does do it, we should appreciate it and uh, not take it for granted. So I think that it's it's pretty incredible what he's doing. And uh, every year is that's like this, he should win the MVP. But I don't think we should assume that every year is going to be like this. So Los Angeles Angels, his team, started off okay. Looked like they might be in the playoff hunt. Mike Trout's gotten hurt. The you know chances are fading every day, and it seems like a foregone conclusion, at least in the media, that Shohei is going to be traded. Do you anticipate seeing this happen? Uh, you know, as opposed to the Angels just letting him walk at the end of this year. Uh, well, you've eliminated the possibility of the Angels re-signing him. So <laughs> well, it seems like he. It, I don't know. You, you would know better than anybody, but it doesn't seem like he's uh, you know absolutely thrilled to be there. Well, I mean, if you ask him how you feel the season's going and he says, I'm disappointed that we're losing, that's what anybody would say. Uh, I don't think it means that he hates it or that he absolutely doesn't want to stay. I think that people, you know, sort of like when you look at a cloud and you see a duck or a chicken, you know, it's <laughs> people people are looking for reasons for Otani to leave. And certainly, don't get me wrong, he is frustrated that the Angels have been losing. He wants to play for a winning team. But uh, I think that he also believes that the Angels have some pieces to be a winning team. He believes that he could help them be a winning team. And there are other things besides just whether you win or lose that matter. And a lot of those things, you know, certainly work for him with the Angels. He knows how the whole routine works. He knows how the environment works. The team has bent its whole roster in pretzels to, to fit him in. So I think that all that stuff sort of adds up to the fact that, uh, you know, there is still some chance that he's going to resign with the Angels. It's not a foregone conclusion that he's gone. And, Jeff, you know, I'm from New York, and the New York media basically every day has an article written about how he's getting to the Mets or how he's getting to the Yankees. You know, when he came into the league, he'd said he wanted to stay on the West. You know, he wanted to play on the West Coast. He wanted to be closer to Japan. Do you know if anything's changed, and would he be willing to, uh, you know, obviously he can't control a trade, but would he be willing to sign with an Eastern, Eastern Coast team after this contract's up if he doesn't stay in L.A.? I mean, he doesn't say, he never really says anything about any question that has anything to do with him playing for another team other than the Angels. He basically will not answer. But the only data point that we have is that when he picked the team the first time, not only did he pick the Angels, but five of the seven finalists that he met with were also on the West Coast. So uh, that was certainly his preference at the time. Uh, I think that we sort of assume that it's still his preference. Um, but, you know, he hasn't said. Ira, what do you have for Jeff? 
Jeff, I was at the, uh, thanks again for coming on Iron Sports. I really appreciate it. Um, I was at the World Baseball Classic a few months ago. What an electric atmosphere. And that, that final pitch when he struck out Trout, that was just much, that was just probably, I guess it was the, the, I, one of the most exciting baseball games I've ever seen. Yeah, that was quite a show. Uh, and I, I just think it's amazing that, you know, as soon as basically we knew that Trout was going to be in the WBC and, you know, we knew Otani was going to be there. Everybody's saying, oh, my God, how great would this be if Trout faced Otani? But the odds of that happening were still, like, so remote. You know, the teams started on opposite sides of the world, and they had to get through all these games and levels and schedules had to work out. And for it to finally happen, and not just happen, but as the last out of the entire tournament, was just an incredible gift that we got from the baseball gods. And it was uh, it was certainly entertaining. It was so cool when he was in the dugout because he's hitting and then he might be pitching. So he, he'd run out, run to the uh, bullpen to warm up, come back and hit. It's, it was like you're at a high school baseball game and the best, the, the greatest athlete is trying to play all these positions. And you're like, wait, this is not a high school game. These are the best players in the world that are playing. And that was so cool. And, and you could see how his team, the Japanese players, just the full amount of respect towards him uh, and the love they have for him. What a great teammate and a leader he was for that team. Yeah, I mean, he was very excited to play in that. It's something that he, you know, he grew up watching Ichiro play in the WBC, and he really wanted to do it. And he, he was hurt the last time they had one in 2017; didn't get the chance. So uh, this was definitely a big, exciting thing for him. And and also, you know, as we talked about, the Angels have not really given him the chance to play, you know, for for a championship. And so this was sort of some replacement for that that he got to experience. You mentioned in your book, your book. I suggest everybody go get this book. It's a it's a great back, so you can learn about the backstory about where how Ichiro, where uh, Otani grew up and, and his life that perspective. But remember, he had those injuries in 2018, the Tommy John surgery. But since then, since you know the 21, 22, 23, after he's recovered, that he's been relatively healthy now for the last three years. Yeah, I think he's played the most games of anybody on the Angels, uh, which is <laughs> really the opposite of you know what it was for uh, 18, 19, and 20. He was. He had a lot of injuries. He slumped, and the team gave him a lot of days off. They they eventually realized the days off were not preventing the injuries, so let's just forget what the days off. And uh, he's been incredibly durable. Uh, that being said, I mean, who knows what's going to happen five, seven, eight years from now. So it's certainly going to be interesting when he signs his next contract how a team you know evaluates that. Just to double up on a question that Mike asked about Billy Epler, who was the general manager of the Angels, what he signed there's now with the Mets. So the Met fans are thinking, well, that could be our in. And then, of course, we had Brian Hoke on from the uh, who covers for MLB.com, the New York Yankees. I'm talking about Judge, and there's all that talk about you know pairing a Judge and Otani and what that would be like. Um, do you think that Epler? Do you think that is going to be a pull at all uh, for him? Maybe go to the Mets. Well, I think Billy Epler was maybe the single biggest reason that Otani picked the Angels in the first place. Uh, so they definitely had a good relationship. That being said, I mean, can you tell me Billy Upper is going to be the Mets general manager next year? <laughs> that's a good They're question. not really doing that well right now. So, uh, you know, I think that that certainly is uh, part of the equation. So, you know, we had you on last year in August, and, and I remember I'm going to ask this question again because I think some of my listeners run on four radio stations here in South Florida, and they didn't hear this. But give us a little bit about from your book about his background. I mean, I was intrigued that he did not grow up in a baseball playing area. It's actually what you would consider like a northern area of, of Japan. Uh, to give us a little bit about of his background and, and where he came from. Yeah, I'd say it's sort of comparable to like Minnesota <laughs> or in the U.S. to where it's it's cold a lot and they don't, they don't play as much baseball as they do in other places. 
but he he was just totally <clears throat> excuse me he was totally focused on baseball and you know set his goals from when he was young that he wanted to be the best baseball player and uh you know what was really interesting is that he didn't really think about being a two-way player until the uh Nippon Am fighters gave him the opportunity to do it otherwise he was just going to come to the US right out of high school and probably would have just been a pitcher so uh the way that all emerged was was a very interesting story too yeah, I mean that was it was tremendous, and then and and even he decided to he could have waited and sort of played the system and made a signed the big contract coming to America, but he, he actually gave up a lot of money just to come to America when he did. Yeah, the, because of his age, he was limited to the amount of money he could get in a bonus. He was basically treated like he was a sixteen-year-old shortstop from the Dominican <laughs> Republic, as opposed to being a big free agent like you know when Matsuzaka or those kind of guys came. Uh, so he, he definitely could have gotten a lot more money if he stayed. But on the other hand, he did have a grade one UCL uh, injury while he was in Japan. So he might have had a feeling that two years from now, who knows what's going to happen. And and it turned out that he did have Tommy John surgery within those two years. So uh, we don't know what would have happened in history if he would have stayed in Japan, ended up having Tommy John surgery in Japan. Then he might not have been a two-way player anymore and, might not have gotten all this money and who knows how it would have turned out but i think he's he's going to get the money now now to talk about some other teams uh, we're down here in miami and Messi just came to miami lebron said he wants to take his talent to south beach uh we have damian lillard who wants to come to miami i, I just don't think we're going to get Shohei to, to want to come to to south florida but the dodgers uh again they last year they they sort of let their free agents go they didn't sign anyone and they're like it seems like they are gearing up to make this offer uh for otani and, and he gets to stay in the same like 30 miles away uh, what what's your thinking about the dodgers attitude towards this yeah i think that everybody kind of correctly assumes the dodgers are the front runner to get him as a free agent because you know if he wants to win they're one of the teams that wins every single year they've got lots of money uh it's it's not a big fishbowl media market like new york or boston or something like that uh it's the same area it's on the west coast i mean it seems to check all the boxes so uh, i think that's why a lot of people assume the dodgers would be the favorites and then the money, I, I was just on my drive over here. I said, I think people think he's going to get a $700 million contract. And he's like, oh, that's impossible. He would never be offered something like that. But we just saw Juan Soto turn down from the Nationals a $400 million contract. So it, is it that extreme that Otani would be offered something like $700 million? You know, I actually don't think he's going to get that kind of a deal because I think that basically there there's going to be five or six teams that are in the ballpark financially of what he's going to deserve which is the biggest contract in history and you just have to go over 427 to get to that and then after that he's just going to pick the place where he wants to be and i don't think that if a team is not where he wants to be that they're going to be able to convince him otherwise with another 50 million dollars so i don't see it becoming a bidding war to where the price would really go up that high i think that everybody's going to throw their 500 million out there 525 or 530 or whatever and then he's just going to pick the place he wants to be and there won't be like continued like an auction or something like that. Uh, I just I think he's going to go where he wants to be happy and 500 plus million is plenty. 
<laughs> yeah, well, sure. He, yeah, I think I would say that. So I wish he would come up. Maybe he hopes he has. He could have come up with the arrangements Messi has here in South Florida, where he's owning this and owning that stream and this stream and all those things, um, and for those things. But for the next two weeks, though, do you think that it would be a situation where the Angels, if they make that decision to trade, um, you know, they would. Co- it would be something where they'd have to get his permission, not permission, but the, it would. He'd have to talk to the teams that they were potentially going to trade him to. I don't think a team would have traded for him not having talked to him uh actually no i think that that's exactly what's going to happen I, I think that uh you know he's not going to negotiate a new deal with a team you know in 48 hours when he's never even been there so whether he talks to them or not i don't think is really going to happen i think a team that trades for him would just have to take a gamble that you're going to be able to convince him in two months that he should stay but i don't think you're going to have any assurances uh, in any way of that so I think that's the way it's going to go. So is your prediction that he's just going to stay? Like, I mean, for the Angels' perspective, now we have their owner, Artie Marino, was going to sell the team. Now he's saying, I'm going to own the team. Do you feel like the Angels are going to say, look, let's wait to the end of the year, and then we'll try to work on it to try to keep him? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's going to happen. I mean, every day that they lose, uh, I get a little – I feel like there's a little better chance of them trading him. But at this point, I still think that they they want to re-sign him. And they feel like they can re-sign him. And if they trade him, they feel like that sort of closes the door on re-signing him, which it doesn't technically like by the rules, but, you know, practically it, it has, you know, historically. So I think that uh, if they do still have him on August 2nd, it's going to be because they really want to re-sign him. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. I encourage everyone to pick up your book. You're all in the bookstores. I mean, again, it's one of those things where you can go on Amazon for on Shohei Otani, your book. You're the only one I think that has a, the most uh, detailed book about it. So, again, thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. All right, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah imagine he pulls in a Roldis Chapman when he got traded, you know, from the Yankees to the Cubs. They got Glaber Torres, and he just resigned with them, you know, helping his team. You never know. Remember when the Dodgers traded for Machado from or the Baltimore, and then he was there just for a few months, and then mm-hmm. they, then he left and went to San. That's why they boomed so much. He was only there for like two months, mm-hmm. but that was his when he responded to my question when I asked him about whether would a team just trade. I guess the team would trade for him, saying, "Look how great you come to us. We're traded for you," and then he'd feel more comfortable signing with them. Supposedly, but. that's the Mets' plan to just get him in the building and then we'll sell him on New York. But they want a lot of prospects for him. So he should hang out with Aaron Rodgers. They can go to the plays, <laughs> the Taylor Swift concerts, everything like that. Get the full uh, Aaron, yes. Aaron experience. Yes. It's Ira on Sports through all these channels. Of course, you can follow Ira anywhere at Ira on Sports. Let's talk a little golf. I mean, I guess playing good at the right time means something. Rory McElroy coming off a win. <laughs> Well, I'm laughing because I, I got everyone loves Rory. Like all my everyone. friends love him. I mean, they love him. It's like, oh, he came back. He had two birdies on the final two holes to win the Scottish Open. And they're like, he's winning the British Open because it's next week. He just won the Scottish Open. Scotland, Britain, same thing. It's going to happen. But, of course, his record, 0 from 33 for the last majors. Uh, but he is the heavy favorite coming to the British Open. But winning the Scottish Open is something. And Scotty Scheffler, it's like if he's top 10 every single week, it seems. 20 straight top 12s. That's Un- <laughs> that's like Tiger-esque. You, know, you said it a few weeks ago. He's not Tiger, but this is like the closest thing you're going to see, the, the consistency this guy has. And, um, go ahead. And then I also thought it was funny that they're – 
the golf is running a two-tier where the British, they PJ sponsored the Scottish Open and then they had the Barbasol in Kentucky, another tournament. They said, we could never do that, but with the Liv, because Liv was saying, well, why don't we have a, a major tournament and have another? No, the PJ said, we can't do that. They do that. That's what they do. But I thought it was funny that Vincent Norman, you know, they hate Greg Norman so much, but Vincent Norman won the Barbasol Championship. No relation, no spelling, <laughs> but he won the Barbasol Championship in Kentucky. You mentioned Liv and I think Jay Monahan's back in the office for the first time in seems like months. Today is his first day after a month off. Welcome back, Jay Monahan. And they had a congressional hearing last week, and I watched it. Ron Price, Jimmy Dunn. I have never heard to. It's like if you went, if you since you went to the car to buy a car, and then you came back and asked your wife and said, "What happened?" He goes. I looked at a car. We talked to car. We came to an agreement. Well, what's the price? I have no idea. I have no idea. What, what, what car are you buying? I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen so much talk about something that nobody knows what was even agreed to. No one seems to understand what they agreed to. There's been papers and this and that and all these things. There's congressional hearings on some sort of agreement. But as I said before, this only benefits the Lib because the point was the PJ's philosophy had always been, we're never talking to Lib. They're the devil. We can't talk. We're not talking. We're not talking. And then we find out they've been talking and talking. And then also Rory's defenders that when they had this hearing, it came out that Rory met with the Saudis yeah. in November, and then and people said, "Oh, he was just exploring ways to the, the they could work together." What exploring ways to work together? The PGA Tour mole going in there to learn <laughs> their information. Rory did say he would retire before. Ever and then he makes that comment, and that's the headline of the Palm Beach Post. And Rory's going to retire. I mean, it's just again when the when it came out that they live uh, the Saudis were going to put one billion dollars in there, and the PGA supposedly only has three billion. So when all the prize money that Rory is getting, the $20 million and all that stuff, is coming from the Saudis. Is he retiring? Is he not retiring? Like, help tell me what that means. Like, it's, again, it, it's the whole sanctimonious and better than everyone else. I, I, it, it rubs... It's working. I mean, I'm not telling it's not working. Everyone, all my friends love Rory McIlroy. He is coming to this British Open as popular as I've, it's a Tiger-esque level of popularity. And I just, whatever. We'll see. Well, you mentioned the British Open kicks off. It's going to be at Royal Liverpool. The last time Rory won a major was at this course. But... You've got a little bit longer shot that you think is really, really safe bet here. I love this one. <laughs> this is great. First of all, this is in Myerstow, England. It was founded in 1869 and uh, by old Tom Morris was the one who first designed it, as opposed to young Tom Morris. They're just the two of the best <laughs> golfers. I always like that. So bringing that up. It's 12 times have been as the British Open's championship has been played there. And the last two winners are pretty famous. 2006 Tiger, 2014 Rory. It's <laughs> a bad. traditional tournament. We saw the last couple of things have been these funky things. It has two par threes, two par fives. It doesn't end with a par five. It doesn't end with a par three. It ends with two par fours. So it's going to be, it has that traditional tournament look. But of course, anytime you look at these British Open, the Lynx courses, they're, the greens are like the same green for like three different holes. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. no, it's not green at all. But Rory is five to one favorite. That is Tiger Woods level. He has not won a major in 33 majors. He's had zero wins. Now he's had tons of top tens, tons of top fives, but hasn't won. Scotty Scheffler, eight to one. Um, and he's been only played this two, 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 eight, eighth and 12, the two times he's played it. John Rahm, who hasn't been playing well though, is 12 to one. And he's only had one top 10 uh, in six tries. So that's, you would think that Rahm would do well in this tournament because he's European and everything. How about Ricky Fowler? 12 to 1. <laughs> this is unbelievable. But the funny thing is in 2014, when Rory won it, he was in second place. But he was, this is someone he failed to qualify for five of the eight major championships between 20 and 21. He was ranked outside the top 100 in the world at the beginning of the season and didn't even earn an invitation to the Masters. And for the PGA Championship, at the beginning of the year, he was 100 to 1. So he went from 100 to 1 to 12 to 1, which is Joe's Butch Harmon. I mean, yeah. everybody should, Butch Harmon should be charging $100,000 a lesson or something <laughs> or whatever. Uh, I was surprised that Tommy Fleetwood 15 to 1 in 
Hovland. They're both, they were both tied for fourth last year, so they give a lot of credit for what you did before. But of course, my winner, and I'm telling you, this is about a lock. Cam Smith, 15 to 1. I, I just, love it. It just, he was, I'm not picking some, he was defending champion. He's been <laughs> playing great on the Live Tour. You saw what he did at the US Open. You've seen what he done. I mean, he's playing great. And he just won this tournament last year. Like, Cam Smith is 15 to 1. And if you really want to go on a flyer, somebody who really ah, maybe doesn't do so well in majors, Brooks Kepka, 18 to 1. Yeah. 18 to 1. He should be 5 to 1. 18 to 1, Brooks Kepka. <laughs> I mean, he's four top 10s in the eight tournaments he's played. He, uh, I just think this is, uh, it was, I mean, he's someone, uh, some other names, uh, the 221, the 2021 winner, Colin McCarr was not playing well. It was 28 to one. Shane Lowry won in 2019. He's 30 to one. He was fifth in 2014 when they played just surprisingly, Dustin Johnson plays this tournament. Well, he's 30 to one. He was eighth and sixth in the last two British opens. And when last time it was, you know, in 2014, he was in 12th. Um, Jordan Spieth who has not been playing well. is 30 to one. He was a 2017 winner. Um, Adam Scott, 50 to one. He was, it was fifth when it was here in 2014. And I like Bryce and DeChambeau. Again, he's another live golfer that they penalize on the odds. 50 to 1, and he was 8th last year. Uh, and then how about the US Open winner, Wyndham Clark? Uh, 50 to 1. So we'll see if you can. He was like 100 to 1 there. Now yeah. he's 50 to 1 on this. And might and how the mighty have fallen. If you could look at this and say, Justin Thomas, 55 to 1, like that has to be a typo. Him and, him and uh, Ricky flipped. Unbelievable. The fact that that's just so how poorly he's been playing. Um, another, if here, I'm going to throw three golfers if you just want to throw 10 bucks on something. Patrick Reed, who again, everyone hates. As much as Rory is loved, Patrick Reed is hated. Yes. 85 to 1. I mean, that's crazy. And Patty Harrington, now this is crazy. He's 51 years old. We've had him on our show, Ryder Cup captain. He is 100 to 1. Now remember, in 2007, 2008, he won back to back. He's only 51, but remember, this is the type of tournament that Tom Watson almost won when he was in his 60s. You can be an older player understand the course of play and he said when he's played the the champions tour he said i've never played better in my life than he's playing right now so i think that for 100 to 1 <laughs> and then when remember winning clark won 100 to 1 because he had won a couple tournaments Sepp Straka, Honda Classic winner, won two weeks ago. He's 100 to 1. So here's a player who's won two times on the tour this year, is 101 odds on this, and was drives far, everything like that. So just going to give you threes 85 to 1, Reed, Patty Harrington, 100 to 1, Sepp Straka, 100 to 1. Steph Curry uh, coming off a pretty embarrassing loss in the match to Patrick Mahomes <laughs> and Travis Kelsey, picked up a tournament win this weekend. I'm telling you, I, Steph Curry might just quit basketball and just go on the tour at this <laughs> point. Like, I mean, it's like he was so excited. I mean, he would, he's someone who you would think that. I could I could imagine that Steph Curry, when he's 42, that stop play, would go, would practice so hard and play and be on the pro tour. He's the one, would that be amazing? I'm sure the PGA or whatever kind of tour, what it is back then, whoever's running it at that point or live, would love to have Steph Curry. Could you imagine the thousands of fans at a Corn Ferry Tour event for Steph Curry? It'd be <laughs> he, great for the sport. Right. I mean, he would, he would, he looks, I mean, he's what, a tremendous athlete. And the funny thing is they're playing the tournament and they have basketball courts along the course and he's like taking baskets and making shots while he's playing. So. <laughs> oh, it's 751. On Ira on Sports True Oldies Channel. Lionel Messi has arrived in uh, Miami, and I believe we know his start date. Yes, amazing. And he was in Palm Beach at the Publix and Palm Beach shopping and buying assortment of cereal, which is amazing. <laughs> which I don't know what he's so I don't know if he lives everywhere. It's very under the radar, but they just made it they sold the stadium out. The tickets, he wasn't playing in a game, and the, everyone shows up at the stadium and tickets were thousand dollars just to see him walk mm -hmm. out. It's absolutely amazing. He's really taken over South Florida and the and you, we went over it before about what the ticket prices are gonna be. Just uh the again, this is not the retirement tour that most of these European players come 
from here or South Africa, South American players uh, come over here. They, this is really uh, uh, amazing that he's in the prime of his career coming here playing. Yeah, one hundred and eleven thousand dollar tickets are going being sold for his first game. It's just absolutely insane what he's done to South Florida. I, I love the Women's World Cup, and partially because. Our American women are fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to kicking this They've off. They've won three uh, in a row. Week. They yeah. win all the time, and and it's this is a weird World Cup because you have situations where you have Alex Morgan, Megan Rapinoe, and Julia who have won multiple World Cups, Olympic gold medals, and everything on the team, and then you have the Sophia Smiths, the Trinity Robbins, which is Dennis Robbins' daughter, which would be amazing to have. But you have these great young players, so it's going to be this mix of the old and the new playing, and and I really think, and you listen to how in Alex and Megan talk and how they've embraced the leadership role in this team it's going to be it's hard to see how i saw the odds where usa was plus 250 england's plus 450 spain's plus 60 the rest of the world has improved a lot but it would uh we'll see what happens but it, it, I, it it's in australia and new zealand but they're going to play the matches i looked at the times trying to play it at nine o'clock which means it's the 24-hour difference or whatever 36 12 hours 12 hour, so it'll be at uh uh it'll be at nine if they play it in the morning in, in there it'll be nine at p.m at night here so, the uh, you know the, the deadline to sign your um, to sign your NFL uh, franchise tag agreement has passed. Um, I mean, I guess it's proven that running backs just really don't have the value they used to in this league. No, no, they don't. And I think about Jim Brown, Franco Harris, O.J. Simpson, Adrian Peterson, Jerome Bettis, Thurman Thomas. I mean, running backs were everything. That's what all we talked about. The quarterbacks were secondary. Mm-hmm. Remember, when you think about the Dolphins, Brian Greasy, I mean, uh, Bob Greasy, but you really think of Larry Zonka, who we've had on our show, too. But now it really is. It is, it is amazing that uh, one thing is that I was looking at statistics. The top, 25 top running backs of all time, none are active. None are active. Not Emmett Smith is eighteen thousand yards. That's going to look like Cy Young's five hundred wins. No one's <laughs> even going to come close uh, to that right now. Derrick Henry is eight thousand yards. Emmett Smith is ten thousand more yards more than he has. It, 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 no one's paying the running backs, and, and I'm going to blame the union for this because when the union came in, you go to three years of college, and then you pay, play four years, and then you can become a free agent, and that's going to make someone around twenty five years old. Well, that means for everyone thought, oh, that's going to be the quarterbacks who get franchised. What we're seeing is now it's all the it was uh, it's the running backs that are getting franchise tagged, and the three people that could not sign their off Josh Jacobs, Saquon Barkley, Tony Pollard all had franchise tags, and then you can franchise them for just one year, not the long term guarantees. And by the time they're 27, 28, you're too old. We're not going to give you the money. Mm. And it's really the union that that did that allowed this franchise tag to be able to put on because that's what's stopping them. And and the and the running backs are upset. They're like, we should be paid more money but if you looked at the wide receivers Devontae Adams is 60 million guaranteed Tyreek Hill 72 million guaranteed the highest guaranteed for a running back McCaffrey 38 Kamara 33 Henry 25 I gave you this stat earlier the kickers Justin Tucker at 17 million and Yung Koo at 12 million would be like the fourth and fifth most guaranteed money considering running backs like they're they feel the team say look when you're 27 you're we're done and we're not going to pay Barkley all this money we're going to find some we're going to draft players Isaiah Pacheco was in the seventh round from Rutgers last yep. year and was on the Super led, Bowl led champion. Led the Super Bowl champions. And yeah. you're, everybody's running back by committees. They have three or four different running backs there, and they do not value this position. And now the running backs are all upset. They're like, and that's why what's happening with Jacobs at 25, Barkley. They're not old. Pollard's 26, and they're only going to sign a 10 million dollar franchise tag. They can't even get. And they're saying what they're mad is like, well, why can't I get McCafferty money or Henry money? I go, the market has changed. You're not going to come close to that. They, they're only offering you 20 million guaranteed, not the 35 million dollars. 
No, it's crazy to see, but then you've got guys like Dalvin Cook, still a free agent. People thought he'd be picked up immediately. It's, people are kicking the tires on him. And that's I it. think with fantasy, it's the other thing is that we're drafted fantasy. Everyone thinks quarterbacks, wide receivers, and running backs, and wide res- and running backs are the first, second round. And so people in fantasy think running backs are more valuable, but it's really the left tackles, the yeah. guards, the right yeah. We don't play fantasy unless you have defensive positions, which most people don't do. It's really these running backs have all this value. In some way, the running back should figure out a way that anybody who plays fantasy football and drafts them, they should get like a penny or something like that, then that would pay them because that everybody values that. So it's it is it's just crazy that these running backs are like, oh Barkley is the core of the team. But Lady and Bell He's the one who started this because the Steelers offered him money, didn't sign, and he was the only player to sit out a whole season. Then he played, signed for the Jets, and he just came in doing a media tour saying, I made a mistake. I should have never left the Steelers. It was a big mistake. It was a big mistake. So I would assume that Barkley, Jacobs, and Pollard will all play for the Cowboys, Raiders, and uh, and Giants, but they're not going to be happy. So the Tennessee Titans may be where receivers go to die. I read the Andre Hopkins. I mean, we've seen this before. They brought in Andre Johnson at the end of his career, Julio Jones. Now it's odds uh, D-Hop. He's only 31 years old. And I think the funniest thing is everyone thought it was between Tennessee and New England. And, and understand something. When he was at, in Houston playing, he was a superstar. He was at 110 catches a game from 2015 to 19. He was very close with Mike Rabel, who happens to be the coach of the Tennessee Titans, and who was the defensive coach. He was defensive coach, but everyone knew they was close with him. But he did not like Bill O'Brien, who was the head coach and the general manager, who traded him. Yeah. So he's looking to come to New England. So let's analyze this. At New England, the offense coordinator is Bill O'Brien. So why would he sign for New England if you have the coaches you're, who you hate? You, he's a, he also, you know, he's, he's openly said, like, I don't like to practice. This doesn't fit Bill Belichick at all. I never thought this was a, a realistic fit. I don't even know where these rumors and came I, from. Well, he, he met there, and he didn't sign, and people were, I think, his meeting there. But really, he just I, I always felt now Tennessee got a bargain at 15 million a year I mean they lost AJ Brown the year before they felt and that coming for Ryan Tannehill I actually thought this is great for Tennessee and I think it was a good move for for Hopkins I think all around but I never ever thought he would ever the comments he said about Bill O'Brien I never thought he would ever go play yeah, they Why hate would you, each other <laughs> hey, 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 well O'Brien said oh I, I forget I, I, I that was nothing whatever but there's no way this is not like the suits you know where everybody that TV show suits where they get they're mean and they're not they hate each other they're the best friends I, I really think that was crazy that was gonna happen we only have about two minutes left here Ira last week on the show we broke the uh, story about Pat Fitzgerald from Northwestern and it's kind of been a trickle-down effect from there. Yes, I mean, well, in terms of they fired their baseball coach also, but the fact is, is that he was let go after he's, and my, I'm going to make, we'll talk about this maybe more next week, but my statement is this. I've been reading so much about this. Northwestern, I, when they played Penn State, it was the only reason they stayed in these games was because of Fitzgerald's coaching. I mean, they were lucky to have someone who for 16 years had wins in 2010 and 15. They won 10 wins, 2017, 10 wins. He, uh, in 2020, they were ranked 10th in the country. And in the last two years, they were they were 3-9 and nine and 1-11. and 11. And without Fitzgerald, they are not going to find someone who's going to coach his team. I think this team is, they were already bad. He was the only thing keeping them relevant. And I think they're going to be awful. And they and you see the, the uh, Northwestern, the community is against football now, saying we're overemphasizing it too much. you know. And, and I think that once they keep de-emphasizing it, Northwestern's going to get thrown out of the Big Ten because they're going to start losing these games 50 to nothing, 60 to nothing. And it's not like in the years, oh, they lost 33 in a row years ago. But in this day and age, when Fox wants to put them on TV and NBC wants to put them on, they're not going to put a Big Ten team that's losing. And I think the people at Northwestern are going to say, we should be playing it. They'll go to the MAC or somewhere else and they'll replace Northwestern with like North Carolina, another good academic school or something like that. But I'm the only one out there 
just saying that I think this is the beginning of the end of the Northwestern in the Big Ten. University of Tennessee is going to be vacating some wins, and you think it's a silly reason. Oh, they, they are getting more fines, penalties, probation, all this stuff. And if you total out everything, they gave recruits, parents, hotel rooms, totaling $60,000 over like a four-year period of time. And now, <laughs> crazy. Th- th- there are backup guards for Mid-Amer- the, uh, for basketball teams that are getting paid 60000 You have Caleb Williams making 10 to $12 million in NIL deals, and you're penalizing Tennessee for $60,000? It's insane. And this was before the whole NIL transfer portal change. And let's wrap it up here. You know, there's so much talk about Dame Lillard coming to Miami, but you think there's a better option than Dame. I'm telling you, if we're if the Heat are going to give five first-round draft picks and everything, Joel Embiid was just interviewed, and he's like saying, I just want to win a championship either here in Philly or somewhere else. Well, somewhere else, if you're going to, if the Heat are looking to give up all these things, let's get Joel Embiid. He would fit, first of all, he and Jimmy Butler are best buddies. They're great. I know that Lillard and Butler are also buddies, but the fact is that I think that if they would, if MB, Butler was mad that the Sixers chose Ben Simmons and over, you know, over Butler and that, and that idea, I think Embiid would be pairing with Adebayo and Butler would be perfect. And if we're going to trade all these pieces, I'd rather have a center who's the MVP of the league than Damian Lillard. So I'm thinking that could be, uh, I, what, the Sixers can make this trade? Maybe not. But what if Embiid made a demand? What if something happened? So that's just something to think about. What are you up to this week? Um, not sure. Not sure yet. I, I'm getting ready, though, for my summer plans. I do have. There's a tennis tournament in Washington, D.C. I want to go to. Spring uh, training camp. The Steelers, I've got my getting on my invitation, so I'll go to training camp. So I'm going to keep myself busy in the next couple of weeks. We'll see. Thanks so much to Jeff Fletcher for stopping by. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.